Yeah, I mean, in, in moral philosophy, we have traditionally talked about the yuck factor and the extent to which your own discomfort with the idea of being involved in a practice or being the, the agent of, of some action um, might make you resist it, but then also build all sorts of arguments around what is essentially a sort of almost emotive um, response to the idea. That is Bobby Farsidis, Professor of Clinical and Biomedical Ethics at Brighton and Sussex Medical School. She's been described as one of the few people that's acceptable to both sides of the assisted dying debate. I'm Duncan Jarvis, Multimedia Editor for the BMJ, and this week I went to visit her on campus to talk about the way in which the debate on euthanasia has played out in the UK and hear why she thinks it's now time for all individual doctors to make up their own mind and not let either camp own the argument for them. You're uh, a professor of bioethics. Um, could you tell us a little bit about what you do, sort of what's your, your day job, really? Well, my day job's a mixture, really, between teaching the medical undergraduates and postgraduates who come to our medical school uh, research, my own research interest is very much in the ethical challenges that practitioners face when they work in difficult areas of medicine. So I've always got something new to look at. Yes. Um, and at our medical school, we take public engagement very seriously. And I'm very committed to the idea that we've got interesting and important things to say to the community at large. So I get to do fun things with uh, artists and performers across uh, Brighton. Oh, that's great. Um, now, you've been doing this for a while. You first wrote about um, the fact that assisted dying isn't, if you're, you really care about good care, um, those two can coexist quite comfortably. Back in 1988? 1998, 98, that particular sorry. article. Um, yes, I mean, it's such a long time ago that the whole way we frame things, I think, has changed slightly. I sort of used the term euthanasia-free zone in the title of that article, which I wouldn't do now because we, we talk about assisted dying. And I think, actually, that, that's an important change of, of language. Um, but, yes, a long, long time ago, I raised this possibility that you could be a good and dedicated palliative care practitioner, but also think that for some people, at certain times, death was the, the right option. And something that they might want to do. Um, now, it seems to me that, kind of, ethically, philosophically, we've been, this debate's been going around, we've covered it in our pages, we've covered it in our podcast. Um, the arguments at this point seem very well rehearsed and and pretty firmly made? I think you're right there. I think there's not many new arguments we can bring to the table. I mean, one of the things we have now that we didn't have in the past is evidence. Mm -hmm. We have data from countries where they have chosen to change the law and allow doctors to be involved in assisting patients to die. And I think we've got a responsibility now to bring that data together with the arguments mm. and see how it all matches up. Mm. Um, and that's being done in, in various ways, um, and we've published on this uh, as well. But despite new data, it seems like those underlying arguments aren't changing, or at least the sort of 
entrenchment of, of the camps hasn't actually shifted. I think we have to acknowledge that in the past it's been a particularly polarised debate and there are still elements of that. But what we have nowadays, I think, is almost the public creating a bridge between the two uh, poles of the argument. The public are engaged and interested and thinking about this issue in a way that doesn't rely on being absolutely for or absolutely against. They are, I think generally concerned to think what would this mean for me what would this mean for society what can I expect who's going to make a change if change comes about mm. and that to me slightly takes the heat out of the argument mm. and that is interesting in, in your article you point to an Ipsos Mori poll that said 70% of people in the UK um, are in favour of, of changing legislation to, to make assisted dying legal. Um, and yet, I suppose, sort of standing back and, and looking at this um, from the outside, I'm not a, a, a doctor, I'm not someone who would have to ever deal with this. Um, we have kind of, I don't know, that middle ground seems to be missing from a lot of the arguments that we hear. We Everything's got more and more kind of polarised. Well, I mean, often in ethical debate, people seem to think the excitement is at, at the polls. Um, I used to be teased unmercifully when I was younger for uh, often saying on the one hand and on the other hand, <laughs> wanting to do that balancing, yeah. wanting to bring two sides of the argument together and see what happened then. Um, and, and maybe we, we should all be much more committed to thinking about the similarities between the people that have hold, held opposing positions mm -hmm. in this debate. Because... I think on both sides of the debate, it often comes from a true concern for patients' interests, with one side feeling that without the ability to make important decisions at the end of your life, you lose out in a very substantial way, and others feeling fearful for the safety or the well-being of people if they are given those responsibilities in this world that we live in. Mm. So it's not that people are in any way trying to be um, unfair or unkind. They, they have different sorts of worries and concerns. And I think they could talk to each other much more effectively than they have in the past. Yeah. One point you made just there was um, people seem to be concerned for patients. Um, and I suppose... You know, by no means have I done this in a sort of systematic way, but talking to people, it seems like, you know, some of those concerns, the the, the philosophical ones, um, are frameworks within which people can kind of, I don't know, obfuscate their own squeamishness with the idea of perhaps being in a position where they're asked to help someone die. Yeah, I mean, in, in moral philosophy, we have traditionally talked about the yuck factor and the extent to which your own discomfort with the idea of being involved in a practice or being the the agent of, of some action um, might make you resist it, but then also build all sorts of arguments around what is essentially a sort of almost emotive mm -hmm. um, response to the idea. Um, and And... I think, again, we have to be fair to doctors in thinking that for some of them, 
it absolutely goes against the whole way in which they have thought about what they do to think that they will bring about death rather than fight it or postpone it or or manage it in, in some other way. But for other doctors, they still may not relish the thought. I think it will be a big adjustment for many, but their commitment to respecting the wishes of their patients and listening to society when it starts to tell them that this is something that people more broadly find acceptable would trump that personal um, distaste. And of course, if the law were to change, one of the things that we will do is offer uh, the right to conscientiously object to participate in assisted dying. What I would then ask people to do is ask themselves very carefully, am I conscientiously objecting? Am I doing this as a matter of principle? Or am I simply not wanting to do something mm. that I find uncomfortable and challenging? Mm. That's a quite hard thing to do, I imagine. Having to to disentangle that would be tricky. I think we, yes, I think we all use those sorts of slight obfuscations, to use your word, uh, in in life. And it, it, it is a big challenge to ask yourself when you um, don't want to do something, why don't I want to do it? Is it a self-relating reason or is it a concern um, that, that I can defend a little bit better? Mm. And it's interesting because it says, as you say in the article, some of the work that you do at the moment is... Um, helping organizations kind of future plan for if this if the law changed and, yeah. and this this became available in the UK um, and so people are kind of thinking about this maybe at a remove but not necessarily about their own practice I think people are thinking about it and I think it's very interesting that as a society we've become much better able to anticipate ethically complex futures mm. I mean bioethicists sort of began to develop as a profession in the wake of um, the Warnock report having to deal very suddenly with this amazing advance in science that threw up all these important issues but it felt like it was really on the hoof and I think people are doing a lot more sort of future scanning and thinking it looks like change is coming either because of a development in science or because of a change in public opinion and morality, and we've got to be ready for that. Um, can I just get you to explain what the Walnut Report was? Okay. So uh, when um, the famously 40 years ago now, the first test tube baby, Louise Brown, was born, uh, we realised the ethical complexities that were going to um, come up in that area of medicine. But there wasn't a regulatory framework uh, to manage the situation. And thank goodness for Dame Mary Warnock, a philosopher by training, who wrote her report that then informed a very sophisticated piece of legislation and a, a regulatory body that persists to this day. Um, and since then, we've we've tried much harder, as I think, as a society to think, what is science going to deliver us as possibilities? Um, what, Where is public opinion going on certain important matters and how can we be prepared to, to change the way in which we do things to, to match on to that? Mm. And um, 
Louise was born what, 40, th- 40 years, years ago. ago. Uh-huh. And uh, recently we've just seen that in the UK um, we're going to allow uh, mitochondrial transfer. And that's, so that's another sort of new step. Um, and, you know, relating this back to the conversation that we, we were having initially, um, you know, you work with, with the public a lot. Do you feel like the public, not just, you know, the sort of the sense of a legislature or, or whoever, but the public themselves are, are more able to grapple with these, these kind of complex, ambigu- ambiguous, you know, um, ethical situations? I, I think they are, and I think that, uh, you know, thank thanks to the way in which um, school children are educated nowadays to relish debate and, and think about complex issues. It starts at a very young age. Um, death and dying is a really interesting one because you talk to many people and they would say, oh, there's such a taboo around death. And uh, I was with some colleagues just last week and someone said, well... Is there a taboo around death or is there a taboo around my own death? And in some ways, maybe as a society, we, we think through important issues for ourselves by engaging in these bigger issues and make it about, you know, what the law says or doesn't say or how medicine mm. treats this issue. Um, and maybe there still is a lot of difficulty around thinking about your own mortality and making plans and and ensuring people know your wishes but for some people that's important work and they they are doing it and they have the means to do it and they are being encouraged encouraged in various ways to do it Mm, interesting you're here at brighton sussex medical school and you teach medical students um and if i recall my student time correctly the idea of my own mentality was so far away that it was it was totally abstract. Um, how is it that your students are are engaging with this? Are they engaging with this um, these conversations, or or is it put off? Well, I had a wonderful um, fourth year medical student a couple of years ago, Jack Elwood, who was interested to find out just that uh, thing, and he did a, a, an excellent piece of work. And what he found was. It wasn't that people didn't want to think about uh, death and dying mortality and their role as future doctors in relation to this, but that they weren't as yet being invited to do that. And when they were invited to do it, they had lots of interesting things to say and they were genuinely interested in thinking about how in the course of their future career this might be something that they were asked to do for their patients and where would they sit how would they feel how would they negotiate that Mm. and he uncovered a whole range of views from those who knew very clearly that this is something they would never feel comfortable with be it for um, religious or cultural just deeply personal moral reasons those who felt they might be supportive of it but oh I'm not sure that would be anything I could be a part of Mm. and those who felt that if the law were to change, it would become part of their responsibility and their duties as a doctor to be equipped with the skills to assist patients in this way as in any other way. And it seems like a big change in, in you know, the way that students are, are thinking about this, perhaps the way the professions or, you know, we, we 
have said the Royal Colleges should be discussing this more and, and that, you know, perhaps the BMA should, you know, discuss it more. And there's the definite, like, a reluctance to do so. Well, I think the BMA has made great efforts in recent years. They had a big project uh, around assist, uh, dying and end-of-life care and went all around the country and encouraged discussion and debate and produced some great materials to help with that. Um, time will tell, but maybe this polarisation that both you and I have identified as a feature of this debate in the past is is breaking down. The interesting question is then will those who have the power to give voice to those polarized views listen to the fact that their um, colleagues may now be taking a sort of more nuanced uh, and quieter and calmer approach to the whole debate mm. I mean, we talk a lot in in the podcast um about the sort of those sociological changes that are happening in medicine, whether that's the idea of, you know, overdiagnosis, overtreatment, or patient empowerment and, and who should be making decisions about it. And kind of underlying some of this is almost a feeling that there's a wave of change coming through the 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 doctor population. But perhaps we just have to wait for some people who have views that won't change, who have ways of doing things that aren't necessarily very amenable to change, to retire and or, or you know sort of move out of that, that public realm. And um, yeah, I just wonder, you know, you've got a, a long view of this. Yeah, I think what you always have to remember is that no clinician boils down, or it is very, very rare indeed to just one view on one issue and and many of the people that have voiced true reservations about assisted dying are highly experienced highly skilled practitioners who've given given a lot to their specialty and and that will always be recognized and in part that's what gives them the 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 platform from from which to speak and the authority from which to speak and I think you know I I would go a long way to to respect those individuals but at the same time um, I think you do have to allow for the possibility that um, your junior colleagues have grown up in a, a different world in a different way of thinking in a different way of relating to patients that might be much less paternalistic for example might focus less on um, protecting patients from harm and more on facilitating patients needs and and wishes in the way that they characterize them um so i think yes things will change with time people who genuinely feel that they need to protect society from this thing will go on doing it and 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 they have every right to do so um but i think it's always good to listen as well as speak to receive as well as transmit and you know if we could only create a situation in which all the incredible expertise that people have built up over many years in the palliative care movement could be brought to inform a new world if and when it comes that surely would be for the benefit of patients i think that's a lovely point to to wrap this up on um 
Bobby Fasuti, thank you very much for uh, joining us today. Thank you. Thanks. You've been listening to Bobby Fasidi's talk about the debate on assisted dying. Her article, Palliative Care and Assisted Dying Are Not Mutually Exclusive, is now available on bmj.com, alongside a package of other content on euthanasia. In another podcast, we've also been talking to Sabine Netters, an oncologist from the Netherlands who's actually helped people die there. She gave a really moving interview to Sophie Cook about what that feels like and how she reconciles the need to care with that very final act. You can find that on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts from. We're in most places now. There you'll also find hundreds of other episodes, all available for free. I'm Duncan Jarvis, Multimedia Editor for the BMJ. Thanks for listening. <laughs>